Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I am that dude, Bodkins. Patty da Patty. That's ridiculous. No way. There's nobody else out there. He's your guy. Give a big round of applause for the one and only Bodkins show. I'm going to repeat that again, folks. I didn't stutter. Welcome to the Bodkins show. everybody welcome to another great episode of the bodkins show i am that dude bodkins of course it has been a busy weekend uh for myself uh, we've been watching a lot of college basketball been doing a lot of shows if you missed it dan harris put me in the hot seat uh yesterday sat down on the dan harris show a long time come with my good friend dan harris uh we did a good show together then just a little bit ago if you missed it after this, please check out the uh, collab show, which was myself, Johnny Cruz, Ryan Larison, uh, Tanner, and <laughs> um, Scott Cobe. We did a nice little collab show on the right here on the Let's Talk Sports Network. So if you missed that, any of those shows, please do check those out. Uh, but tonight, I don't want to keep our guests waiting any longer. You know what it is. It is our Sunday sit-down conversation show. And boys do, boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, do we have a doozy for you tonight. A man who has seen everything that you could possibly see in the world of baseball. That's right. Opening day is just a this week, just a few days away. You guys know what it is. I'm the diehard Cubs fan. We're not going to be just talking Cubs, though. We're going to be talking all things baseball. A man who has seen everything there is to see in baseball. A man who watched Jackie Robinson play. A man who knows, who's probably forgot more baseball than I'll ever be able to remember. Welcome to the program for the first time, Dan Carubia. That was a heck of an introduction. You know what I'm talking about? Forget about it. <laughs> I appreciate it, Dan. Uh, let's get straight. Hey, baseball always been your first love, and how did that? How did that happen? Well, it has, and it is. Um, I watched, and I'm 76 years old now. I just celebrated a birthday two weeks ago. Happy birthday, my friend! Happy it's belated like, birthday! Thank you very much, and. Uh, we would sit in my dad's house in, in Richmond Hill, Queens, and watch the Brooklyn Dodgers play. And I probably was on a black and white TV in 1954, 1955. I know it was 1955 because I remember the Dodgers winning the World Series, Johnny Padres and stuff like that. And then in 1956, I was uh, nine years old, and my dad got tickets to um, a game at Ebbets Field in Brooklyn. And uh, we, we didn't have a car. My dad made about $12,000 a year. Uh, we did have a house. And uh, he was um, uh, he designed or cut leather for women's shoes that would go into Saks Fifth Avenue and some of the big those stores in, um, in and around uh, New York City. And uh, he got tickets. And it was camera day and, um, at, at Ebbets Field. And um, we took the train, the Jamaica train, to Eastern Parkway in Brooklyn. Went down and took a two-stop train to a shuttle and uh, took the shuttle train over to, to Ebbets Field. And we walked in the ballpark and you walk in and every to me, a nine-year-old kid, this is like, I, I, I've i never seen anything like this. Guys are going, hey, line up, program, scorecard, can of beer, you know, all this stuff. And we walked down a long corridor to left field, I guess. My father knew 
everything, you know, what was going on, where we were going. And we were sitting uh, about three rows in left field near the Braves bullpen where the home plate was because they, they, they threw uh, the relief pitches through right by the foul line, you know. And it was a red railing about five feet high. And um, I walk up the ramp and I level out and then the ramp goes down. I don't know why I remember this. It looked like I was stoned because <laughs> everything was in color. The, the black and white scoreboard in right center field, the left field wall with all the advertisements, the greenest grass I've ever seen in my life. It was, it was, wow, this is Ebbets Field. I had a brownie camera, which I still have. And um, we walked down and then a couple minutes later, the batting practice was all over and the players would come down. So I have the brownie camera looking through the top and here's, I take a picture of Duke Schneider uh, I think there was Carl Erskine was there. And I'm taking a couple pictures, Junior Gilliam. And here comes a player. And my father said to me, give me the camera. I said, Pop, I, I can take the camera. I can take the picture. He said, give me the camera. Now, my father was an Italian guy, so he didn't mess with him, you know. <laughs> so I give him the camera, curse him under my breath. And then he says, now, I want you to hop on the seat, hop over the rail and get on the railing. And I want to take a picture of you and this player. I said, Pop, I can't hop over the railing. I can't I can't get on the field. I'm nine years old. First game, I'm going to walk on Evans Field next to a baseball player. Do it. Okay. <laughs> hop over the railing, walk out to the play. I don't know what I said to him. I remember what he said to me. He said, sure, son, turn around. Two things I remember to the day I die. How hard his arm felt on my shoulder and the dew from the grass hitting me in the face. It was Jackie Robinson. And this is the photo of me and Jackie Robinson at Ebbets Field in 1956. And uh, he talked to me for a couple minutes and he said, I don't have a ball. But I said, Daddy, he took a picture of me, you know? And from then on, even then, I was a Dodger fan. And then Dodgers left in Brooklyn, 1957. Jackie Robinson was his last year in 1956. And um, the Mets came in in 1962. That was my National League team. I hated the Yankees. And um, from then on, I went to the first game at the Polo Grounds, went to the first game at Shea, World Series, went to the last game, was on the field of the last seven people. I exited that at the Shea Stadium via the dugout. We can talk more about it later. Walked down the corridor and, and left Shea for the last time. And that's how I like baseball. And then I'm long-winded here, but I I started to play ball at about 10 years old. And about 12 years old, I started to pitch for um, Babe Ru or the uh, Richmond Hill or the Rich Haven Little League. And uh, I pitched a little bit, played first base. I was a lefty. And um, then I played with the South Queens Boys Club at 14, 15 years old. And we had a wonderful coach or two that became a mentor to me. Um, he was just really a cool guy. His name was Billy Veltry. And he winds up um, uh, going to NYU, playing in a league called the Brooklyn Queens Alliance, which is like a semi-pro league. And I wind up, after I get older, about 17, I played uh, 15 years in it league. It was a semi-pro league. And he, uh, he was a teacher, a gym teacher. He uh, held basketball clinics. And he was an NCAA basketball official 
refereed a number of games at Madison Square Garden. And then um, I played until I was 34. And then I took a year off, transferred to San Francisco and still pitched in the men's senior baseball league. And um, I pitched my last game at 70 years old on a minor league field where I worked for the um, Tri-City Valley Cats. And that's how I got to where, I mean, it's, it's long and complicated, but baseball, <laughs> baseball to me is um, made me what I am because you get knocked down at home plate or something, or you ground, you hit into a double play with the bases loaded or you strike out, but you got to get up again. And you're not going to let that, that last at bat affect you for your next at bat, because that's a failure. You get on the mound, you give up a grand slam home run the first inning, which I did one time. And my coach who wound up becoming my second dad, uh, Dick Hollis for the Long Island Americans and the Queens Alliance league looked at me in the face. He said, are you going to let this inning screw you up for the next six innings? You pitch, or I'll take you out right now. And I was 17, 18 years old. And that kind of like, I did okay after the that, that inning, all right? But that's what life is about. You get knocked down, you dust yourself off, and you get in the baddest box, and you don't let a bad scenario affect all the successes that you have. Right. It's the old adage, Dan, right? It's not how hard you can hit. It's how hard you get hit and, and keep moving forward. Yes, sir. And and that's that's a lot of stuff. Did you play sports and everything? Uh, yes, sir. I played. I was a basketball player. I love baseball, but uh, I, I realized at a young age, I can't hit the broadside of a barn. So uh, I, I have I don't have the greatest hand eye coordination. Maybe that's why I love baseball the most, because I tell people all the time, I think the hardest thing in the world to do is uh, hit a ball. Uh, and especially when you don't know what's coming. So yeah. I, I, I have great admir, uh, admiration for uh, people who can't do things that I couldn't or can do things I can't do. And uh, so I've always loved the game of baseball because of that, because I can't hit vert. I can't hit. Uh, and uh, so I, I was a basketball player because you could, you could put in hard work and it doesn't take a lot of talent to be on the team of basketball because you can do the dirty work. Right. But at baseball, if you can't hit, you can't hit, you know, that's just something that uh, I couldn't see the ball or pick it up out of the pitcher's hand. And they could have been throwing two miles an hour and I probably still couldn't hit it very good. Well, so uh, I, I was always, uh, uh, I love to play. I played a lot growing up, uh, like in, you know, little leagues and things like that. Yeah. I just, uh, hey, I'd stand there and try to hope that they threw four balls and uh, that and take my base. That was, that was like me, but you were right. It is the toughest game because in order to be successful in baseball, you have to hit a round ball with a round bat squarely. And, and I mean, I, I was okay. I mean, anytime I get the ball over the infield on a fly, I would call it a home run. So, but, <laughs> but I pitched, and, and, and that was good, and I enjoyed the game. I, I love to compete. I, I'm 76 years old, and I still compete on stuff because that was ingrained in me. And, and that's a lot of the stuff that – you know, um, baseball is, is a, it's changed a lot from when I looked at it now, more analytics and stuff and things like that. And, of course, and we'll get into that, Dan. I want to get into a little bit of that to lay uh, a little bit here. I, I want to kind of back up to that Jackie Robinson story. At that time, when I know you're only nine years old, but did you know or like kind of what Jackie stood for or, or what this legend of a person that you were taking a picture with? 
A little bit. I knew I knew that he was the first African American to play in 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 the major leagues with the Brooklyn Dodgers, 1947. In fact, uh, he started his first game with the Brooklyn Dodgers. I was about a month and a half old, or a month old. Okay, and and I followed the Brooklyn Dodgers, and Vince Scully was on the radio with Jerry Doggett. He was his work uh, announcer, a friend with his. And, and they would talk a little bit about this. And I, I remember sitting in my dad's apartment with my grandfather saying, why is the pitcher always thrown over to first base? So I was learning a little bit. I was eight or nine years old. He's got to try and pick him off. Look at Jackie Robinson steal second base. Wow, is he quick? That's really good, you know? And then, you know, these things happen. He steals home against Yogi Berra in that place. Was he out is safe? But he stole home in the World Series, you know? So... But I knew a little bit about Jackie Robinson was after that fact. But here's the sad part. And I, it's really sad. All those years, I never asked my dad, with all the players going by, why did you pick me with Jackie Robinson? Why couldn't I take my picture with Gil Hodges? I got a photo of, of Gil Hodges and the Duke, of Duke Schneider. Yeah. Why Jackie Robinson? I never asked him that question. But as I got a little bit older, I played baseball in New York all over the place, college and everything. You don't look over here. You look here. And and who's your teammates? They wear the same uniform. If they don't wear, if you're not, if they're your rivals, you still look at here. You don't look here because they can come on your team next year. You know, so or in work, same thing. It wasn't that way. And I, I guess I learned it a little bit from when my dad said, get on the field. That's how I, and then, and then Jackie Robinson was head of chock full of nuts. And one day, uh, the coffee maker company, one day I'm in the city working for Milliken and company where I worked 35 years. And this is the early 1970s, I guess. And who do I see coming out of one of the chock full of nuts? places on 6th Avenue and 38th Street, Jackie Robinson. And I shook his hand and I told him about the photo. And I didn't say, could I get your name or anything like that? <laughs> or, you know, could I get your address? Could I send you the photo, autograph it for me? Never happened. Never, never happened. So, but these are these little things that, that, that transpired. Was uh, he your favorite player growing up then, Jackie? Or did you, was it sounds like the Duke might have been? Well, the Dodgers were. Um, I, I liked Sandy Koufax. Um, he was a left-handed pitcher. He was from the area. Uh, he was a bonus guy. And the Dodgers, I think, had to keep him on the roster in 1956 uh, in, in order to not lose him. And he, he walked a lot of guys, and as a left-hander, I did too. And so I liked Sandy Koufax. And I remember 1962 Memorial Day weekend, the Dodgers played the Mets at the Polo Grounds. And he pitched one of the games. I don't know if it was the first or second game. But where I was sitting, because we would sneak around to these seats. We wouldn't stay in one seat, my friends and I. But I was sitting on the second deck behind home plate, maybe the second row for a couple innings, and Koufax was pitching in that overhand motion, how he let the ball go. 
and you know it's 62 or you know so I'm, I'm, I'm in my teenage years wow so he was Gil Hodges he was a professional you know uh he was quiet he was unassuming he didn't when he hit a home run he just you know dropped the bat and took off but I I would say Sandy Koufax uh, and in later years, it was Jerry Kuzman. I love Pete Rose because he was a in-your-face type baseball player and with all the hits he did, but you didn't want to lose against him. And I can I can visualize what it must have been like for a pitcher to try and pitch against him, you know. But that Sandy Koufax is my man. Is that what led you to be a kind of a pitcher? You, you said he pitched like all the way up until just, I mean, you're even 70s. Yeah, well – I don't know why I pitched. I guess because maybe I was left-handed, and there was only another two other positions to play, first base or the outfield. And I just felt I wanted to be in the middle of the game. I wanted to be, you know, I played roller hockey for many years, I, uh, roller hockey and ice hockey, and I was a goalie. I don't know what it was, but it felt good here and here to be in that position. And um, it was it was really um, it, it was fun. Uh, you had seven guys behind you, and they were your teammates, and they depended on a little bit of me, and I depended on a lot on them because I needed a fast outfield. I needed a really fast outfield to co- co- make up for all my mistakes that I was. <laughs> so it, that's the way it was, but that's cool. Ever did you? I mean, at the uh, uh, like the dream to make it to the pros, or or was that just like, hey, I'm just gonna ride this thing out and continue to kind of play semi pro, or you know, what was at what point were you realized like, hey, I'm not gonna make it to the MLB or the show, and I'm just gonna ride this, uh, continue to play semi pro? Um, I I was hoping I, I signed up. This is probably I'm 18, 17 years old. The Yankees would say. If you want a bird dog, or if you want somebody to look at you, here's send your team's games and information, tell them a little about you. And and this guy showed up one day. His name was Jerry Napolitano, and he was a bird dog scout for the Yankees. And um, he told me after the thing, he says, You got a good rhythm, you're really good motion, you got great control, but you got to improve on your fastball. And I was throwing as fast as I could. And uh, it never worked. And my cousin, Michael Carubia, uh, was signed by the Baltimore Orioles, 1961-62. He was signed by, I think, Joe Torrey's dad. And he was a pitcher in Long Island. And um, he, um, he roomed with um, the shortstop of the Baltimore Orioles. Uh, in his first year in Bluefield, Bluefield, West Virginia. And uh, I, I, I skip in my name. He was in the 1969 World Series, this shortstop for the Orioles. Like, like, so he roomed there, and then he got drafted by the L.A. Uh, Angels, played out in Quad Cities, went 15-3. and three. And he would tell me when we, we would come home, you you got to throw faster. you you got to be – so I – didn't have the fastball. I had control. I had good breaking ball. My fastball moved, but it wasn't as fast as people would think it would be. Hey, Dan, th- there's Greg. Greg Maddox made it. You could have made it, my friend. Uh, 
No, not really, because I was left-handed. <laughs> and, and even with, with Tommy Glavin, you know, I watched him, and I'm thinking, wow. You know what I did? I think I gave up. I think I, I, I think what, what I said before, I didn't follow through because everybody said, you can't do it. You can't do it. But I didn't have a big aspiration. I know my cousin did very well. Then he hurt his shoulder, and he never played again. And um, he became a very well-known trumpet player and musician for many years. Um, it, the guy that he ruled with is Mark Belanger. That's the guy. Uh, but I don't know. I, I don't don't think I, I got. There was a Detroit scout one time in college, you know, and he was there, and he said, "Nah, you know, he, he didn't say anything. But he just looked and said, nice game.' That's all he said, you know, but." Everything worked out for a reason, and that's it. You know, I played 45 years of baseball. Can't beat that. I mean, that's yeah. more than what I, a lot of people could uh, ever say. Dan, you, you said something earlier that su surprised me. You said you hate the Yankees. You're a New York guy. You're Italian. Like, I feel like that's just – Yankees uh, are just part of that, uh, you know, what? why the Yankees? Is it because you were a Dodgers fan and they had those early rivals? And then why not once the – Dodgers left to go to LA. Why not jump on the Yankee bandwagon? Uh, I no, I couldn't go from the National League, and there were. I, I tell you what, the Dodgers played an exhibition game in 1959 against the Yankees. It was like the old, um, I forget, it was called the Mayor's Trophy game, where teams played exhibition game, like the Yankees played the Giants, the Yankees played the Dodgers, one game in the middle of the year, and. 60,000 people showed up at uh, Yankee Stadium when the Dodgers came in. And I cried that night. That was my team. I mean, I'd love to see Mickey Mantle play, Moose Garin and Yogi Berra. And in 1961, 62, the boys mm -hmm. on the block, my friends, would take the train with $8 and $9 in our pocket and see a Sunday doubleheader at Yankee Stadium before the Mets were really there, 1961. That's when Mark Rat Maris hit his... Um, uh, 61 home runs. And I think we were there at a game in 1960. So we were 13 by ourselves when we saw Ted Williams hit, we was, we snuck down to right behind first base at the stadium. And we saw Ted Williams hit this lofting fly ball into the lower right field stands. And I think it was, yeah, it was Ted Williams. So it had to be 19, but I would go to Yankee stadium. We could, we could go and, at the end of the first game, we'd be upstairs with all the people there, unreserved seats, a buck thirty to get in. I wish it was like that today, Dan. Oh, <laughs> and we could go upstairs, watch that first game, and then tear ass downstairs, go under the stadium behind home plate. And we would stand there right after that first game. And we would go, Could I have your stub? Could I have your stub? Could I have your stub? And if you got a paper ticket, uh, a nice paper ticket. That was a box seat. It was anywhere between the dugouts. Now I got the seats with my friends. It was four seats. We would sit right behind the dugout for the second game at Yankee Stadium in 1960, 61, 62. And at the end of the game, the people that were in the lower boxes could walk on the field at Yankee Stadium. The ushers would rim the infield. And we would walk out to the outfield under the bleachers onto Jerome Avenue to get out of the stadium. And where Mickey Mantle stood five minutes earlier, 
we were standing there and I didn't have a camera <laughs> and we would stand by the monuments and stuff. But I, I was always a national league fan. Uh, I, the Yankees were always winning. And I remember in 1955 when the Dodgers won the first world series like that, it was like, Oh my God, they did it. They beat. And, and then the next year, I remember this. I don't know why. I, in, I was in public school, PS90 in Queens. On Wednesdays, we would go to release time for our church. So we would get out at maybe 1 or 2 o'clock. I, I guess it was 2 o'clock, 2.30, and we walked to my church. And some people, you know, Catholic people, I was Protestant. And I walked down this street, 111th Street, and I stopped in the candy store to get some candy before I went into the church. And they, the guy had the, the game on, radio. I said, "What's who's winning? Oh, the Yankees are six nothing. I said they're beating in the seventh game. They're beating the the the, the Brooklyn Dodgers. Johnny Cooks was pitching. I think I didn't go to church that day. I went home and cried. <laughs> you know, I, I have a a, a a story similar to that. Um, Two thousand and three. Obviously, the Cubs are in the NLCS, and uh, I remember this is my first. My dad took like I was five outs away from going to the World Series, right? You know, uh, the Steve Bartman ball. Yeah. And I was a junior, sophomore in high school, I remember. And I'm I'm standing up. My dad's chain smoking. Uh, and I'm like, Dad, we're going to the World Series. This is it, you know. Uh, and he said, you know, kind of, boy, shut up. Like, you know, shut up. Like, you don't say shit like that. And uh, sure enough, you know, I got my heart ripped out in game six. And my dad really was like, now you become a Cubs fan because you're not a Cubs fan until they rip your heart out. And uh, now you become a Cub. Now you're indoctrinated into the Cubs nation. You, they ripped your heart out. Well, I remember going to school game seven. My basketball coach uh, asked me, he said, hey, Bodkins, you know, um, how many times the Cubs make the playoffs in your lifetime? I said, well, now and once in 98 and uh, that's it. Like we've only been the, you know, uh, the playoffs twice at that point in time. I was born in 87. So I wasn't alive for, I think the 84 year when they played the Padres. Uh, so I was like, well, that's it. Like 98. And now coach. And he said, well, if you want to miss basketball practice to go to watch game seven, uh, go home and watch game seven. You know, I, I understand. Cause you're, you know, you can do it. And I said, coach, I said, I signed up to play basketball. Like I'll be there for my team. Like I'd love to, you know, if they win great, I'll catch the last, you know, couple of innings at home. And obviously we lost, but uh, yeah, my basketball coach told me I could go home and watch game seven miss practice because we had a late practice that day. And I just said, I couldn't do it. So I had to, I went to basketball instead and uh, Cubs still lost and obviously didn't get that win till 2016. So I, I definitely understand that kind of first heartbreak as far as, uh, you know, what happened and that, you know, your indoctrination of, uh, oh man, like I, you know, my team is now crumbled inside my heart. Yeah. But that was always the way, because, you know, you always hear about when I was a little kid, Yankees beat the Dodgers. That was most of the world series times for many, many years, Yankees, Dodgers, Yankees, Dodgers, Brooklyn Dodgers. And then when he won in 55, like I said, everything went, crazy in Brooklyn. I wish I was old enough to have gone down into Brooklyn that night with my dad and just hung out on the street corner for, for those wins. And then talk about the Cubs. I, I know I'm skipping real quick, but uh, I was I got married to my first wife August 31st, 1969. 
the 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 pasta was a little bit of late because he was watching the Mets play the San Francisco Giants in a Sunday doubleheader in San Francisco. Miracle Mets, yeah, they beat the Cubs. Yeah, the yeah. Black Cat. Yeah, Ron Sano and the well, Black Cat. But I was at that game. <laughs> the Black Cat game. Yes, sir. My friend Tom Leacock and I, we were up in the upper deck in by um, first base. We were looking down. And I, but the, the game started out really crazy because um, I think Tommy Agee scored real early in the game and Randy Hundley was the catcher. And he thought he was out of a tag at home plate. And, and you see that Randy Hundley's jumping up and down, jumping up and down. And about an inning later or two, Leo DeRosa was the manager. This black cat comes out. Now, I've been to Shea Stadium up until that time from 62 to 69, a lot of games, okay? <laughs> All right? And I ushered at some Jet football games and stuff like that. I never saw a cat run on the field before or after that scenario. But this black cat ran on the field, and he, and he looked right into the Cubbies dugout. Just ran this way a little bit towards the end of the dugout, came back and then turned and looked in there. And I don't know where he went after that. People were trying to get him off. One of the cops that was in the dugout tried to get him. He got him and then took him. But that was, and and then, you know, Ron Santo, I really loved the way he played. Ernie Banks, come on, Randy Hundley, Billy Williams. You know, these guys, um, you didn't expect the Mets to do what they did, but they got Don Clendenin and stuff. So it, it was the Cubbies were always good. Um, and I, it was a good rivalry between New York and Chicago. Yeah, I, I'm conditioned to hate the Mets because uh, even though a lot of that stuff was before my lifetime, uh, my dad always talked about, you know, we can't, you know, Mets in 69 and we hate the Mets. So uh, I'm conditioned to uh, hope all bad things into uh, really in New York general because, I, I mean, I feel like the Yankees, I can't stand, I'm like you, Dan, I can't stand the Yankees because uh, they're the complete polar opposite of the Cubs, the, the, the you know, the uh the empire that is uh, the Yankees. So uh, I heard I heard that they're now worth seven billion dollars, and I forget what George Steinbrook bought them a little couple million dollars, and that was it, and eight million dollars or something. And but but it's like Chicago, it's New York sports. It's you got more reporters and newspapers. When I was younger, they had the New York Daily News. The Daily Mirror, the Long Island Press, the New York Times, the Journal American, and I'm missing a couple other ones, you know. Uh, so they had all these reporters that were right on top of you. You know, and you went to a place like Kansas City, they didn't, no offense to that, but you didn't have those same type of right on top of you guys. And the fan base was Hilda Chesler. I don't Chesler, I guess her name is. She had the Dodger Symphony Band. They would sit behind an upper deck in in, uh, in, in first base. And, and Hilda Chesler was well-known. And the Dodgers – so a pitcher would walk off the mound after getting taken out by the, the manager. That's how the band would play. And it was like crazy, man. It was – you had some wonderful fans in that area. 
So my guy, Alan, uh, who you do the baseball show with, uh, he said Yankees are second most profitable franchise in all of North American sports. Yep. So. I would, I would. Thanks, Alan. And I think that would be most probably yes, you know, but uh, it, it was always growing up to go to Yankee Stadium with 10 bucks in my pocket to see a Sunday doublehead and then take the train home at 14 years old, two trains and a bus, get home 10 o'clock at night. No big deal. With, you mentioned you're, you're the you became a Mets fan after the Dodgers, uh, you know, left town. Was the '69 Mets is that your favorite team, or was it like the those '80s Mets with Strawberry and Doc and, and kind of that wild time of uh, Mets? No, I, I like the '69 Mets because the year before they were all, almost getting better a little bit, and in you know '62, six seven years later, they they lost 120 games the first year. I didn't care. I, I would go to the polo grounds, see a Sunday doubleheader at the polo grounds. Um, Frank Thomas, who was well-known on the team. Gil Hodges came back there. Duke Schneider. You know, um, you, you had Roger Craig, um, who pitched for the Dodgers. And I was at the game when he broke his losing streak. It was a Friday night game, I think it was. And it was the bottom of the ninth inning, and Craig had been pitching, and Jim Hickman hits a grand slam home run. But at the polo grounds, the left field upper deck came above the lower left field where the lower left field wall was. This ball hit off the scoreboard. It would have been caught by the outfield, but it was a grand slam. And I'm running on the field, standing at home plate. And But but I loved them because they were lovable losers. Casey Stengel, they had this cry out that he started, let's go Mets. They had, they had Banner Day there. I'd never seen that before. You know, and you had some great announcers with Bob Murphy and Lindsey Nelson and Ralph Kiner, and, and and they were good, wonderful announcers. And it was just, um, yeah, the '69 Mets when they when they opened up uh, and and got into the World Series, and <clears throat> that was outstanding. You could, I couldn't believe it. Danny, you've, you've followed baseball and been part of baseball for the better part of, I mean. 60 plus years what is the what what do you think of today's game and what's one thing like you wish they would revert kind of go back to or and what's one thing that you're glad that they made the change made the change to well the first thing i i think uh the analytics is uh, a little bit over the top uh, agreed agreed uh, i think there's certain things that happened years ago um i i Worked uh, for the Tri-City Valley Cats in the New York Penn League, and that'll be another story, but they were the minor league team of the Houston Astros. And um, I would get down to spring training, and, and, you know, you could watch a pitcher throw a little bit of, uh, a little bit of uh, practice before a game. They had these little fields where they would have a camera above. And I, one pitcher, I, I, you could count the rotations on a curveball and arm things, and then they would stand behind the batting cage and at, up here where I worked, and you would hear the, the coach go, 88, 89. And that was telling the batter on batting practice how fast the ball comes out of the bat. They move around a little bit, and they don't – it was just – it's just too much – a little bit of analytics. I hope now with the shift not being part of this, it goes back to hitting the ball the opposite way, a little hit and run, uh, stealing bases. I know they got bigger bases, so – uh, I'm okay with the pitch clock. It's going to kind of like 
you're going to run up against some problems in the beginning, but that makes the game a little bit faster. I do not like you can only throw one time over the first base or twice over the first base. I don't like that. The bigger bases, well, it'll help stealing and stuff like that. Maybe that'll be better. The shift, I, I think it's okay, but here's my thought on that shift. you Any infielder can shift anywhere he wants to as long as he's in the infield. That's it. But the way it's set up now, you can only go behind second base. Okay, that's all right too. Dan, to, to that I say this though, and I, I come from the the. I, I don't care about the shift. Like I feel like you're a professional hitter. Slap that son of a gun the yeah. other way. Lay down a bunt and get on to second base. I I am. A, that's what I'm a proponent of. Like, hey, if they're gonna shift as offensive player, you need to you know you need to go slap it the other way. Lay down a bunt. Or to get on base, do whatever it takes. I, I look at it as this, like a, a basketball, right? Like if a guy I know, I, I know he can't go left. I'm gonna make him go left, and he's got to learn to get better with his left hand, right? Like, uh, so if they know you're gonna hit it this way, why not work on your hitting and slap it the other way? But that's the the, the problem with that is last year with the shift, some people did bunt. Go the, uh, uh, you know, the Mets. Um, uh, a couple of the guys went the opposite way last year, and uh, it was wa- good to watch them play. But I think that everybody's getting paid on lift and drive. You got to hit the home run. You got to hit the power. You got to have the lift and drive. So when a guy comes up, like Joey Gallo, he either strikes out or hits home runs. I mean, he couldn't learn how to bunt when when guys are a hundred feet away and they're, they're almost towards second second base. You can't lay down a bunt. And you can't go the opposite field. I'm, I'm just picking on him, but that's an example, okay? Exactly. No, that's a that's and, a and, problem. And then, yeah. and then you, you know, that was all this stuff now. Let's watch it this year. I, I think I'm going to be very astute to stolen bases, hit and run, go in the opposite field, uh, not, you know, uh, uh, fixing your gloves, get in the batter's box and ready to play, okay? And uh, see how the pitches react to it and see if they throw a little chin music and so on and so forth. And But I get back to old-time baseball, you know. And, and what, what I mean by that is uh, play to your advantage. If, if you see an infield the way it's set up and you know you can go the opposite field on a base hit, yeah, do it. And you don't look at the – go back into the dugout and look at your iPad and say, well, he threw me here, he threw me there. You know where he threw you. You know what he's doing. If, if you're ready for a pitch instead of guessing for a pitch, look look at how many pitches a batters are up at the plate. All of a sudden, the guy throws a fastball right down the chute, and he's, oh, strike three or strike two. Is he looking for a pitch? Is he not ready for that? Is he looking for a slide or a curveball? These things, you know, are – Okay, but I'm looking for the new changes. I think it's a positive thing on certain aspects of, of, of stuff like that. Um, the three-pitcher rule as a relief pitcher, that's okay, too. No big deal. The only thing I really don't like is I think a pitcher could throw as many times over the first base. How long is it going to take? And, mm-hmm. and if you reduce 38 seconds of a commercial time between innings, you're going to lower that time, too. But that's money. So you got to have the increase in time between innings. So what's one thing that you would kind of revert back to from like years past that maybe that they've gotten away from? Oh, intimidation. 
when a pitch is on the mound, like Bob Gibson and drawn Drysdale and stuff, the guy bat flips, you know, the next guy would get knocked on his butt. I watch I, I, that stuff like that, uh, you know, going into home plate, you don't have to crash into the guy, but they have these guys out now. If, if the catcher moves over a little bit, you know, stay, whatever happens, if it's a, if it's a very uh, obvious boom, push and everything, yeah, call the guy out. If the guy goes into second base with a slide-up stand-up, you know, throw him out. But if he wants to go straight into second base and if he go, takes the guy out at second base, if he's in the base pass, if he's sliding into the bag, don't call him out. Those are these little things that I think, I think sometimes it it, it it takes away the uh, aggressiveness of the game itself now, you know? And um, – that's the way I like and too much and too much. Uh, oh, we have to review this. It's a close play, but we have to review it. You have 30 seconds. If, if you're going to have a pitch count and you're going to have a pitch count, uh, a, a clock on the pitches and the hitter, then in 30 seconds, the umpire should know whether or not that is a good call or a bad call. If they can't make the call in 30 seconds, they stick with the call. Say goodnight, Gracie. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> What's the one thing that, that you feel like the game has uh, evolved, like has done a good job from the last, you know, several years uh, that you're like, man, I'm glad that this has happened? I think the training aspect of, of the players now, uh, the aspect of, of their, you know, the, their bodies, except sometimes for the pitches that are breaking down with Tommy John surgery and stuff. I think the players are, are, are well schooled and well trained on uh, building their bodies up and ready to go all the time. Uh, I, I think uh, the management of the manager itself is more player orientated than maybe from the years in the 60s and 70s when you really had to manage this is what I'm doing, so on and so forth. There's, there's more conversation back and forth between the players and stuff. And um, that, that's what I think. I think that's to me is um, the more friendly back and forth that players give their opinions on certain things, not to jab anything, but to help the team itself. And it's respected by the coaches and stuff like that. There's more conversation going back and forth. Dan, uh, is uh, Rob Manford, does he hate baseball? <laughs> oh, boy. Um, I, I think not that he hates baseball. He's representing the, um, major league ownership. And what he has done is represent the ownership the way he, the ownership expects him to do that. And there's certain things that have happened with major league as well with the teams and certain things that happened over the last couple of years that really, um, hurt. And I'm 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 real proponent of of understanding why Major League Baseball got rid of those 40 ex those teams these past three years, and they they got rid of some like the New York Penn League, and we were a team the Tri City Valley Cats as I said were part of uh, MLB minor leagues with the Houston Astros for 15 years. We have a 4,500 seat stadium. I usher there, all right. I wipe down seats with my sham wow, okay. And um, so we would average, we have 4,500 
seats in the ballpark, we would average anywhere from 3,800 to 4,300 per game on a season, depending. Sometimes we have 6,500 for a July 4th game. The owner of our team, Bill Gladstone, was the accountant for the Brooklyn Dodgers. He was the head of a big accounting firm in New York. And when you go up to the Hall of Fame and when you walk into that area where all the plaques are, there's a bench. And on the side of the bench, it says Millie and Bill Gladstone. And yet, when he passed away, Major League Baseball didn't have the backbone to say, we're going to keep this team because they supported that Tri-City area up here. But a team down below, the Hudson Valley Renegades, uh, 60 miles away, they're in the A-ball league with the Yankees. Uh, I wonder why. Go look the owner up, okay? See what he's about and who he represented for many years. And and there, there's political stuff. And Rob Manfred, um, I can see him doing the work with the major league because that's that he the, the other thirty teams are his his bosses. All right, so he has to abide by that. There's there was a thing too about the minor league teams that when they weren't the minor leaguers weren't getting paid enough. Uh, depending on, let's say, if you practice, you play a game, and then you get an X amount of dollars. If you put all those times, it was under the minimum wage law. So I, I forget what the law is, but, but MLB is exclusive from that. They're not part of this law. And they, some of the people are saying, you got to pay the plays up or else you're going to lose this. And I think what Major League Baseball, and, and rightfully so, I mean, if you look when I was younger, they had a D League, a B League, a C League, a B league, single A, double A, and triple A. So we're just talking about single A, double A, and triple A. And there were, you know, how many percentage of those players make the major leagues? Not many, but it's competition, but it was selling baseball in these ballparks. And, and the people within the ballparks, the management in the wintertime reached out to the community and helped out. We would do Four and 24, our team, we would fix up four fields in 24 hours for the last seven or eight, nine, 10 years. We reached out to the community. We were part of some of the charities there, like every other minor league team. And then all of a sudden, Manfred comes in and says, yeah, this is the best thing to do because the Major League Baseball wants me to cut down on some of the players because we're paying them too much now. And I saw him, biggest regret, but I was chicken crap. <laughs> I saw him two years ago, over two and a half years ago. My wife and I just went up to Cooperstown. I live about an hour and a half from Cooperstown, right? And we went up to the uh, Augustaga Hotel to have lunch there. Just taking a ride up, walk down. That we weren't going to Hall of Fame. We we're just going to walk around Cooperstown, but it's a beautiful lake, Augustaga Lake, and everything else. Okay. And it was in July, I think it was the beginning in July, and. We park on the side of the Augustaka Hotel and walk to the back end of where this beautiful restaurant is. And it's a gorgeous hotel. That's where the Hall of Famers stay when, the, when, when they're up there to induct. And outside is a beautiful outside restaurant. And then the lake is in front of you. So I, we're walking in the back. Who do I see there? Rob Manford, Joe Torrey, and two other people. I said, oh, crap. Oh, I can't do this. I can't. I should say something here, but I couldn't because 
I was concerned that I, my job as an usher, I just got high by the Field of Dreams game as an usher for the first game in Chicago, I mean, against Chicago in Dyersville. And I said, I don't want to screw this up. So I walked over to him and I said, hi, so-and-so. I said to Joe Torre, I think your dad was a scout, wasn't he? He goes, yeah. I said, he signed my cousin, Michael Carubia. Oh, he did, huh? And he did, and he was talking about the scouting. And I go, oh, you're the commissioner, huh? Oh, okay. So, Joe, uh, I, I watched <laughs> you play so many times. And I was just like, okay. Dan Carubia giving Rob Manfred the cold shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> But I would have said a little bit more and I would have got more of my Brooklyn up, but I had to be respectful to the other people that were there as well as the game. And my, you know, he could have said, who are you? Yeah. You're not ushering anymore. Goodbye. But I, I, I have little respect for Mr. Manfred because I don't think the aspect of the entire realm of, of, um, what baseball is about, and that's teaching the young kids. They're doing a good job of it off the the area, you know, outside of, of Manfred. Um, what he did and had this with the World Baseball Classic, I was a little against it, but it, it changed my mind watching these people compete. I, and, I enjoyed uh, it. I enjoyed it. Yeah, it was really good. And um, a friend of mine, um, I kind of um, – Jonathan uh, – who is on a show with me. Jonathan Grisham, yeah, he's a friend of the program. He he corrected me because I said what Major League Baseball should do is more is reach out now and Manfred should handle this, is go to these countries where all of these players came from and donate a significant amount of money to these fields. I know they, and and Jonathan, correct me, they're doing that, they're doing very well now, but I want to see the results of what's happening. I want to see a lot of this stuff happened and, and, and he's the leader. Why isn't he doing that? Why is not the major league baseball now standing up and saying, yeah, we do these great things, but we're going to do more in here, here, and here. And we're going to build baseball fields. We're going to do this. And here's what we've done in the past. Here's what we want to do now. And here's what we want to do in the future. But that talks leadership and Manfred should come out and say that. Dan, we are four days away from opening day this season. Uh, what's your thoughts? Give me your give me your kind of World Series prediction uh, right now as we're getting ready to kick off the season. Well, as a Met fan, I would say, let's go Mets. We're going to do it. <laughs> I don't think so. Um, I, I, I think that I hope there's a little bit more competition, but you know, you got to go with some of the flow with the Houston Astros. I think that they're going to be a strong team to get Unfortunately, with Altuve down and stuff like that, it, it's it's going to hurt them right now and, and things like that. The Atlanta Braves, you know, they have a young, strong team. And that general manager, if he needs to make a deal to get a pitcher or somebody uh, down the road, if, if they need success, they got two good catches. They got uh, Olsen. They got some good – they need maybe another big starter. Uh, uh, Ian Anderson was sent down to the minor leagues. He's from up here and everything. Uh, I hope he gets his act together a little bit and they bring him back up because that's really good. Um, I, I don't think the Mets are going to do it. I, I think, uh, unfortunately, with um, 
Uh, Hoskins going down, Reyes Hoskins going down with the ACL. I think that's going to hurt the Phillies. But Houston, maybe the Mariners and maybe the, the Yankees and Toronto. But if I had to pick somebody, I'd go with Houston and the Atlanta Braves. And I didn't mention San Diego or the Dodgers, but I, I'd say Houston and, and San Diego. Houston. And, so you got Houston and the Padres. Uh, Houston, excuse me, Houston and Atlanta. Houston and the Braves. Got it. Houston, yep. Atlanta. Hey, we're hammering it home. Dan Carubia's World Series pick, baby. Nobody bet on it. Houston Don't Astros. Everybody coming back. Forget about it. <laughs> Houston yeah. Astros going back to back uh, and the Atlanta Braves, the last two World Series winners. Dan Carubia is knocking it in. Dan, before we get out of here, I'm going to ask you one last final question. Again, you saw 60 plus years of great baseball. Uh, give me your two, your favorite. You mentioned Sandy Koufax. Uh, is is he your favorite? You Give me your favorite pitcher or, of all time and your favorite outfielder hitter all time. Wow. Um, if that's, I'll go with Koufax as a pitcher, the hitter, uh, man, I, I seen a little bit of Ted Williams and how he could hit. Um, but uh, you know, the Mick, he's a Yankee, but to play the way he played on one knee after stepping on that drain all those years and they didn't have a DH and, and he hit all those home runs. Drove in a number of runs, played center field. You know, I, I mean, you got to look at that as far as a game. But now in today's game, uh, as an outfielder, I, you know who I like? This guy. I'm sorry, this guy I like. Jose Altuve. And he was nice enough to, to let me sit down with him and, and take a photo with him like this. Uh, I, I love the way he plays the game. And he told a story. Uh, he got signed by, um, re-signed by the Astros, and his agent was there and stuff. And afterwards, he told a story about him going to a, a, a tryout camp or something in his hometown of Venezuela. And you know, he's five feet seven, five eight. He was shorter then, and somehow the Astros or some team that that were looking at him, um, or looking at all the kids there, told him. You're too you're little. You go home. He goes home and his father gets in his face and says, you go back there and show him what you got. Go back there. And this is in Venezuela. And he went back there. And and I remember seeing him play his first game with the Valley Cats. Young, young guy, no higher than this. The Astros had this camp, the English as a second language. He would go to the English as a second language program in the morning with some of the other Spanish ball players, learn English, do practice, do a game, and he was ready to play. And and I admire him greatly. And and then and an outfielder too, Pete Rose, how he hit, you know. So I'm I'm on the old school of things, just those type of guys. And you mentioned Mickey Mantle. Uh I mean Mickey one leg and the way he partied. I would love to have I would have loved to have a uh be able to party with Mickey. I wondered, like, because, you know, Mickey's got already got this reputation of this wild boy, 
uh, you know, it's weird. It's it, how life was because that was just New York papers, right? Like imagine Mickey in today's world where it's social media is just, you know, click of the button of what what kind of per persona he would have been, uh, Mickey Mantle. You, you, he had a restaurant in New York. It was on 59th Street across from Central Park West. And uh, one day I was doing something, working for Auto Europe, just delivering stuff while I was in the summertime. And there's the mix standing out there with Billy Martin. I said, why, guys? How you doing? I said, could I have your autograph? And I and they gave me his, his autograph. And Billy Martin on, on a, a um, it was on a manila envelope, big manila envelope like this. I took it home and I don't know where it is. <laughs> but, but but the Mick, Billy Martin, I'm trying I'm trying to think of who else was in that group. It wasn't Hank Bauer or Gil McDougal or anybody like that. But they did party. Whitey Ford was part of that that group. He grew up in Long Island and stuff. And yeah, it was a party place, but it was low key. And you know, Jim Jim Bounton wrote that book, Ball Four. And um he exposed a little bit of this. And I know we got to go, but this is relating back. At the end of the book, he writes, he said, all these years, I thought I gripped baseball, but baseball has gripped me. And that's how it done with me. And it's been a, a good ride. I'm going to reopen up another month and a half for the Tri-City Valley Cats and the Frontier League. Pete Incavilia, who played a number of years with the Texas Rangers, is our manager. Uh, last year, we had Kumar Raka pitch there for a couple of games. 20-something scouts came to the game, including uh, Scott Boris. And can I tell you a funny story about this? Hey, man, go ahead, Dan. Anything for you, brother. Scott Boris is towards the end of the game. Um, some of the scouts have left. Uh, Raka pitched his... He was throwing bullets, 95, 96, okay? And I see Boris moving from one scout to another. And I had my usher's uniform on. So I walk down to him, and I go in the first row in front of him. So I'm looking down at him, sitting in a seat, talking to a scout. And I go, sir, excuse me, um, you can't keep moving from chair seat to seat here because all these other customers, these paying customers, are, are in those seats that they're assigned to. And they see you moving around. We don't allow that here. So I'm asking you, stay in your seat. And he looked at me like, are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> if anybody deserves a Scott, then it's Scott Boris. And I said, I know who you are. And I told him who I, you know, we met at uh, Jose Altuve's signing. And he, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So that was, but the look on his face when I was really being serious, Forget about it. You, know? you should have kicked him out, Dan. You should have kicked him out. Nah, of nah, I don't think out. <laughs> you get out. I don't like your face. Get out. Exactly. No. Exactly. I don't like all these contracts that you're making these guys getting all this money. And, Whoa. you know, guys like Chris Bryant are leaving my Cubs because of Scott Boris. That, that's, that's, you know, that's another story we can go on and everything. I, I just hope these long-term contracts with Lindor and stuff like that, He's got another five or six more years to go. I think in five more years, he better be hitting like he's hitting now because then it's not value-added selling to the Mets, and they're going to be charging high prices too, you know? So like every other team, that's what concerns me and everything. But 
that could be for another story at another time. But, you know, it was good. He, he Boros and, you know, Kurt Flood and Don Drysdale and um, Sandy Koufax helped with this stuff and getting players more money um, uh, because they needed it at that time. And um, But it's, it's a little bit out of, of hand now and get the best price you can get. And if you're making $32 million as a, as a shortstop, I'm going to make 36 because that'll up the next shortstop under me for the next five years, you know, something like that. But it, it is what it is. But um, the game is still great. The players play their buns off. And um, I enjoy watching the game. And I'll watch the Mets. I'll root for the Mets to kick butt against the Phil. Uh, Phillies and the Braves and even the Cubbies, you know. <laughs> but um, once you're a fan, you stay with your team. Amen to that. Amen to that. Dan, uh, where can everybody check you out? What's the next show you got before we get out of here? I think I'm on Tuesday with uh, Mr. Grisham, and, and uh, they have his show there, and I do my own show on Wednesdays at some time when Dan Dave Harris puts it on, and a shout out to Dan Dave Harris for all he has done for this whole wonderful group. Amen. And I to him, I'm feeling good, good, good. Amen. Again, we appreciate you, Dan. Uh, Dan Carubia, everybody. Hey, this has been another great episode of the Bodkin Show. You guys know what to do. Like, subscribe, share, be a friend, tell a friend. Uh, it's been another great episode. Dan Harris, we appreciate you at Let Talk Sports as always. Uh, thank you, Dan Carubia, for joining me tonight. We're going to get out of here. Let's go, Iowa Hawkeye women. Caitlin Clark, lead us to the Final Four, baby. Let's go. All right, opening day on Thursday, on the 30th, four days away. Excited to see what my Cubbies can do. Excited for my Iowa Hawkeye girls tonight. Caitlin Clark's going to lead us to the Final Four. For Dan Carubia, I'm Bodkins. I'm going to hit that outro, baby. We'll see you tomorrow night. Bodkins and Buffoon, 8.30 Central Time. That was great.